Hey there, Tad. Hope your day in Issaquah is off to a good start. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a chilly Monday ahead with some snow turning to light rain. Stay warm out there. And while you're staying cozy, let's dive into what's happening around the world. Dune Part 2 is gearing up for its big release on March 1st, and if the buzz is anything to go by, we're in for a treat. That's right. Brian Herbert, son of the original Dune creator Frank Herbert, says it's the best adaptation of his father's work yet. His endorsement has fans and newcomers alike eager to see how this iconic story unfolds on the big screen. I'm Jonathan Martin. And I'm Steve Onsker. This is Game Plan from Pocket Pod News. Meanwhile, Star Wars enthusiasts have something special to look forward to. DK Publishing announced Star Wars The Rise and Fall of the Galactic Empire, set to hit shelves on July 9th. Written by historian Dr. Chris Kempshaw, it promises a fresh take on the Empire's 24-year reign by delving into its impact across various Star Wars narratives and its effects on those living under its rule. And speaking of impacts, the Asian Development Bank is raising concerns about the European Union's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBM for short. They argue that while it might tweak Asian exports to Europe slightly, it won't do much for global greenhouse gas emissions. Instead, they're advocating for technology sharing and using CBAM's revenue for climate finance and developing countries as more effective strategies against climate change. It's shaping up to be an interesting time across entertainment and international policy alike. So stay with us. We've got all the news you need to start your day right here on Game Plan. This message is brought to you by PocketPod. Say goodbye to one-size-fits-all podcasts and hello to a fully personalized listening experience with AI-crafted podcast made just for you. Head over to PocketPod.app to join the waitlist. The sands of Arrakis are shifting once again as Dune Part 2 prepares to make its grand entrance next week. Absolutely. And the levels of anticipation couldn't be higher, especially after Brian Herbert, son of Dune creator Frank Herbert, gave his seal of approval following a private studio screening. It seems this sequel will be as faithful to the original story as fans have hoped. And speaking of faithful adaptations and expansions, Brian Herbert has been quite busy himself, co-authoring several novels within the Dune universe since 1999. His latest work, Dune, The Heir of Caladan, was just published last year. Dune's legacy is monumental in both literature and cinema, and with Warner Brothers and Legendary Pictures at the helm alongside Brian Herbert's contributions, Dune Part 2 aims not just to continue that legacy, but to elevate it further. With us today is PocketPod News Entertainment correspondent John Wilde to dive deeper into what makes Dune Part 2 a highly anticipated sequel and how it stands in comparison to other major franchises. John? Absolutely, Jonathan. Dune Part 2 is shaping up to be one of the most eagerly awaited film releases this year, set for March 1st. The anticipation is palpable, especially on social media where early impressions have been overwhelmingly positive. What's driving this anticipation? Well, a significant factor is the endorsement from Brian Herbert, son of Frank Herbert, the original creator of Dune. Brian recently praised the sequel after a private studio screening, applauding its faithfulness to his father's story. This nod from Brian is not just any endorsement. It's a seal of approval from the caretaker of the Dune legacy himself. How significant is Brian Herbert's role in all of this? Since 1999, Brian has been deeply involved in expanding the Dune universe through various novels co-authored with Kevin J. Anderson. This includes several sub-series and prequel trilogies that have kept the franchise vibrant and evolving. Their most recent publication was Dune, The Heir of Caladan in 2022. 
His involvement and endorsement lend credibility and depth to the cinematic adaptation, reassuring fans that Dune Part Two stays true to the essence of his father's work. And what about its legacy? How does Dune Part Two fit into the broader picture? The efforts by Warner Bros. legendary pictures and individuals like Brian Herbert are aimed at creating a lasting cinematic legacy that honors Frank Herbert's seminal work. By engaging old fans with its loyalty to the original material and enticing new ones with cutting-edge filmmaking techniques, they're positioning Dune as a timeless epic in both literature and cinema. This strategy could cement Dune's place among other major franchises by not just adapting, but truly expanding on its source material in meaningful ways. So it sounds like Dune Part 2 isn't just another sequel, it's an event that's been years in making with a lot riding on it. Exactly. It stands at a pivotal moment for both old fans and newcomers alike. With its release next week, there's a sense that we're about to witness one of the best film interpretations of Dune. The build-up suggests we're looking at more than just a movie, we're looking at a milestone in an ongoing legacy, one that has been carefully nurtured by those who are deeply invested in its success. Fascinating insights as always, John Wilde. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Jonathan. The Galactic Empire has always been a cornerstone of the Star Wars saga, looming large over its sprawling universe for nearly five decades. And soon, fans will get to explore this iconic era like never before. DK Publishing is releasing Star Wars The Rise and Fall of the Galactic Empire on July 9th, offering an unprecedented look at the Empire's 24-year reign. Authored by Dr. Chris Kempshaw, known for his co-authorship of Star Wars Battles That Changed the Galaxy, this book promises a deep dive into the Empire's history from a variety of perspectives. PocketPod News science correspondent Clint Randall joins us now to discuss how Kempshaw's unique approach might change how we view this pivotal period in Star Wars history. Clint? Absolutely, Jonathan. Dr. Chris Kemshaw's upcoming book, Star Wars, Star Wars, The Rise and Fall of the Galactic Empire, is stirring quite the excitement among Star Wars fans and historians alike. By examining the 24-year reign of the Galactic Empire through a historical lens, Kemshaw is set to offer a fresh perspective on a story that's been central to the Star Wars saga for nearly half a century. That sounds fascinating, Clint. Can you tell us more about how the Galactic Empire has been pivotal in shaping the Star Wars narrative over the years? Certainly. The Galactic Empire, under Sheev Palpatine's dominance, has always been at the heart of the Star Wars universe, acting as both antagonist and catalyst for change across its 47-year narrative span. This focus on the Empire by Kemshaw underscores its significance not just as a plot device, but as a living breathing entity that shapes events and characters across the Star Wars timeline. And with this new book's release on July 9th, what can fans expect to uncover about this era? Fans are in for an extensive dive into every aspect of the Galactic Empire's reign. DK Publishing is gearing up to release Kemshaw's work, which will explore not just political and military strategies, but also personal stories from those who lived under or fought against the Empire's rule. This comprehensive approach promises to peel back layers of intrigue and governance that have perhaps been overlooked in mainstream narratives. Kempshaw's role as both an author and historian must play a significant part in his approach to this book. It does indeed. Dr. Kempshaw brings his expertise as a professional historian into play, offering an analytical yet engaging exploration of this period. His previous work on Star Wars battles that changed the galaxy already showed his ability to dissect complex events with clarity and insight. His interest in viewing the Empire through a historical lens will likely introduce fans to novel interpretations of well-known events. The book also plans to cover stories set across various mediums, 
within this era? Yes, that's one of the most intriguing aspects of Kemshaw's approach. He intends to weave together narratives from TV shows like Star Wars Rebels and The Bad Batch, Jedi Games, Timothy Zahn's iconic Thrawn trilogy, comics, and significant events within these mediums into one cohesive history of the Galactic Empire's reign. And how does Kemshaw plan to depict life under the Empire? By drawing from perspectives both ordinary and extraordinary, ranging from those who merely survived under its rule to those who actively fought against it, Kemshaw aims to provide a nuanced understanding of what ruling over or resisting such a vast galactic entity entailed. This multidimensional perspective seeks not only to entertain, but also fill gaps in our understanding about life post-fall of such an omnipresent regime. It sounds like Star Wars, the rise and fall of the Galactic Empire, will be an essential read for fans wanting to deepen their understanding of this era. Absolutely, Jonathan. With its fresh perspectives grounded in historical analysis and comprehensive coverage across different mediums, Dr. Chris Kemshaw's book promises not just an intricate look at one of Star Wars' most iconic eras, but also enriches fans' appreciation for its complexity beyond surface-level storytelling. Thanks for sharing these insights with us today, Clint. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. The European Union's efforts to fight climate change are taking a new shape with the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, but it's sparking some concerns. Right. The Asian Development Bank just put out a report suggesting this mechanism could hit developing countries in Asia the hardest. They're worried about the economic impacts, like reduced exports, especially in industries such as steel production in India. And despite its aim to slash global greenhouse emissions by making foreign suppliers pay a carbon price similar to EU domestic ones, the ADB doubts its effectiveness. They're calling for alternative strategies, like sharing emission reduction technology. It's also worth noting that by 2030, the CBM is expected to generate around 14 billion euros. How this revenue will be used could be crucial for developing countries trying to green their manufacturing processes. To dive deeper into this complex issue and explore what it means for global climate efforts and international trade relations, we've got PocketPod News international political correspondent Alexandra Klein joining us. Alexandra has been following these developments closely. So what can we expect from the CBM and how are countries responding? Well, Jonathan, the European Union's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM for short, is stirring quite a bit of controversy and concern, particularly among developing countries in Asia. The Asian Development Bank's recent report shed light on some critical aspects of this policy. Essentially, the CBAM is designed to level the playing field between EU domestic producers who are paying for carbon emissions and foreign suppliers who aren't subjected to similar costs. However, the report suggests that the real-world implications might not be as straightforward or as beneficial as intended. Interesting. Can you tell us more about how this could specifically impact developing countries in Asia? Of course. The report points out that regions like Western and Southwestern Asia could see a significant reduction in their exports to the EU due to the additional costs imposed by CBM. Industries such as Indian steel production are particularly at risk. This is because these industries would face higher tariffs under the mechanism due to their carbon-intensive nature. The potential economic impact includes decreased exports because of these higher costs associated with carbon pricing, which could be detrimental for developing economies relying heavily on such exports. That sounds concerning indeed, but what about its primary goal? Is the CBM effective in reducing emissions as it claims? That's one of the more contentious points, Jonathan. Despite its intentions, the ADB believes that CBAM is unlikely to significantly reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. 
This skepticism comes from its limited scope, covering just six sectors, and concerns that any small reductions in emissions might be offset by increasing carbon-intensive production elsewhere in Asia without a fundamental change in production techniques. So it seems like there's a bit of a gap between intention and potential outcome here. What about revenue? The mechanism is expected to generate quite a bit by 2030, right? Exactly, Jonathan. By 2030, CBAM could raise around 14 billion euros, or about $15.2 billion, which is no small sum. The ADB suggests that these funds should be channeled into providing climate finance for developing countries to help them transition away from carbon-intensive manufacturing processes more smoothly. And what incentives does this mechanism offer to non-EU economies? Well, one key goal of CBAM is indeed to motivate non-EU countries to adopt their own strict climate policies by offering reduced levies for nations that can demonstrate they've applied a similar carbon price on exports. In response, we're seeing movements from major players like India and China, despite their criticisms towards CBAM, considering or expanding measures such as export taxes and ETS expansions. Speaking of criticisms, how have India and China reacted more broadly to this EU policy? Both have been quite vocal in their criticism of CBAM. China has specifically warned against using climate concerns as an excuse for trade protectionism, a sentiment suggesting underlying geopolitical tensions around trade and environmental policy between major global players. It seems like there's a complex web of implications here. Economic impacts on developing countries, questions about effectiveness in emissions reduction, financial potentials through revenue generation, but also geopolitical tensions underlying all this. Absolutely, Jonathan. It's a multifaceted issue with far-reaching implications not just for climate action, but also for international relations and economic equity among nations. It's been incredibly insightful discussing this with you today, Alexandra. Thanks for having me on, Jonathan. Always glad to delve into these critical issues with you. And that's Game Plan for Monday, February 26, 2024. I'm Jonathan Martin. And I'm Steve Onsker. Thank you for listening, Tad. We hope you have a good day and we will see you tomorrow. This podcast was created by PocketPod entirely with AI. If you'd like to learn more, head over to pocketpod.app.